Welcome back to another episode of Backlash Podcast. This week we're going to talk to Jeff Van Remortel, WDH Guide Service out of northern Wisconsin. And I have no idea when the last time we saw Jeff was. It was, I mean, Jeff's a fairly regular contributor to our podcast. And so I'm sure you wouldn't have to go back too far to find him. For, for sure, not more than 50 episodes. I know he definitely made it a, an appearance on episode 100, which is still one of our most downloaded episodes that we've ever done. So, you know, we're a year out from that episode. So if you wanted to, go back, check out episode 100. It's a three-hour long spectacular of a multitude of people that have helped us get to where we are today. And speaking of where we are today, we are roughly three days away or two days away, depending upon when you listen to this one, from the Milwaukee Muskie Expo, which we call it Milwaukee. It's technically the West Bend Expo, and you can find it at the Washington County Fair Park. If you want more information about it, go to muskieexpo.com. We will be at the expo on Friday, and that starts at 2 o'clock, runs till 8 o'clock. That'd be February 11th. We'll be there Saturday, February 12th from 9 to 5, and we'll be there on Sunday, February 13th from 9 to 2. I don't have a guide list or guide panel or whatever, but there's seminars and everything. Like Check it out at muskieexpo, M-U-S-K-I-E, expo.com. And my co-host this week is Brad Hoppy with Muskie Mayhem Tackle. Brad, 10,000 casts from Muskie Mayhem Tackle is now available. It sure is. Went off this past Saturday as we are speaking on this Wednesday, but there will be five episodes this year. Mayhem's 10,000 casts. Go check it out on KOTV. So Brad, I don't know. What do you got for an intro this week? I mean, nothing really going on. I know if people are still out, you know, if they're looking to gear up for their season, obviously this weekend is a good option, you know, come out and see us at the Muskie Expo. But also if you wanted to, you can go to teamrhinooutdoors.com or you can go to muskiemayhemtackle.com to get some gear. But other than that, Brad, what you know, what do you got to talk, what do you got to talk about? I know, you know, at this show, we're going to have our biggest 50-foot booth, same length of booth that we just had in Chicago, which we've never done more than 50 feet and we've never done it for every single show. And so we're going to have our biggest booth in Milwaukee. So that should be fun. Brad, you got any tricks up your sleeve? Well, I think our tricks are always the the old standards, right? Um, you can come and get any kind of built basically at our booth. Um, tied custom skirts and the whole works. And then uh, we will also be bringing the uh, new grenade. And unfortunately, over the past couple of years, we haven't had this Milwaukee show. So the detonators and triggers will be available at that show as well. I know you can get detonators and triggers at uh, Team Rhino Outdoors booth. Definitely colors that probably you wouldn't see at the Muskie Mayhem Tackle booth. So if people are looking for that gear, you can come visit us both. Come out, talk muskie fishing with us. We'll be there, you know, free to talk about whatever you want. Yell at us about the podcast, what you like, what you don't like. And, you know, whether there's some guests that you want us to see, you know, come out and, and talk to us. As per usual, I was doing a very good job of keeping names and faces together uh, previously. I may not have that same, uh, <laughs> I might not be as fresh as I was when we were in the thick of show season. So come on up if you want, you know, let us know uh, who you are and, and we'll have a good time talking musky fishing this weekend. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as of uh, everybody starting to listen to this on Wednesday morning, um, the following day, we'll be setting up, Jeff. I mean, it's hard to believe and looking forward to seeing a bunch of familiar faces that we've kind of missed over the last couple of years and the milwaukee show is always a fun one i think they've got a great speaker lineup coming and uh looking forward to seeing everybody there so brad i don't have anything else to add this week i think we should just go ahead and get jeff on the phone and let's have a conversation about musky fishing with jeff let's make it happen all right, our guest this week is jeff vandermortal wdh guide service and if i was a prepared host i could tell you when we last talked to jeff my assumption would be sometime last summer, so if you want, you scroll back. Like I said, I'm, I'm unprepared for that, and uh, I apologize for it. But anyways, uh, Jeff, thanks for taking some time out of your schedule. I know the winter season isn't quite as busy as the fishing season, but you're still grinding. I know that. Yeah, for sure, man. It's been, uh, been on the ice a bunch. It's been a really good winter. Our travel conditions have actually held up pretty well up here so i wouldn't say it's been necessarily easy but it's been better than years past i can say that a lot less snow and fishing's been good so definitely still out on the ice you know three four or five days a week a lot of times and then mixing in the shows here and for uh you know musky showdown in chicago and then upcoming milwaukee and uh yeah staying busy for sure 
So Jeff, you mentioned the Milwaukee show. We had seen you in Chicago, but we're gonna you're gonna get a little bit of free time, get off the ice, and you're gonna do what you're passionate about. Aside from doing it this weekend, you know, this week talking on this podcast, but this coming weekend you're gonna be at the Milwaukee show. What's your uh, place there? What are you doing? You got a seminar? What booth are you hanging out in? Yeah, I'll be down there. Um, coming down, be down there Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, I'll be in the Lax Reproductions booth, hanging out with Rick and, and Shannon there. That's my usual home during the shows, and I do have a seminar on Saturday at noon, I believe noon or twelve. Yeah, noon, noon on Saturday. Excellent. Um, so yeah, looking forward to it, man. I mean, the Chicago show is pretty nice to see some folks in person again, and just kind of got back that nice Milwaukee show vibe. And, and I, I think the Milwaukee show should be pretty well attended. I'm hoping. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to it, man. It really really brings back it really makes you miss, realize how much you miss it I, I actually do miss those shows I and mean, i know we all talk and joke about how by the end of our <laughs> by the time we're done with about the minnesota show or you know getting late marks there in years past we're all we're all a little worn out but man it sure is good to see everybody and, and talk about season first and i know that you know we we try to talk about you know the pandemic and covid and whatever but i know like right when we we're going to the chicago show like it seemed like i knew tons of people that have covid it seems like that's quieted <clears> down a little bit so hopefully that will help increase in attendance for this Milwaukee show. I'm, I mean, I'm hopeful anyways. Yeah. yeah, I would say, I think, I think all things considered, it seemed like the Chicago show was, was probably about as good as you could expect. And it was a, it was a good show in my opinion, as far as just got to see a lot of people. And like I said, it wasn't, wasn't too bad, but given, given, uh, given what was all going on at the time, kind of at the height of the Omicron deal there, especially near, near that Chicago popular, heavy populated area there, people were a little wigged out maybe that didn't come and, and that's okay. But, um, yeah, all things considered, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next show here for sure. Seeing everybody in person. So, Jeff, it's been a little while since I talked to you recently. I've seen you pushing this Muskie Academy stuff. You want to talk a little bit of what you got going on there? Yeah, man. It's um, so this. It started out as uh, a conversation. My my um, longtime customer and friend, his name is Blair Wilson. Uh, now he's my business partner with this. We started talking about this about three years ago on the boat uh, before the pandemic. Just kind of a you know, he's an up and coming Muskie angler too, and had a lot of questions and super intelligent guy and just you know, looking to learn and it was just kind of a, it was a good dynamic. And he's like, man, have you ever, you know, thought about writing a book or doing anything with that? And, like, and I had, you know, but it's kind of a, I feel like that was a little bit of an antiquated approach. And it was kind of a, we had this discussion about doing like a master class for musky fishing. And we caught some fish that day and then, you know, he went on his way and, you know, the next year was the pandemic there, 20, 2020. And then we fished that summer and, you know, it kind of came up again. It was, you know, a little ways into the, into the trip there. And it was kind of a, Hey man, have you, you know, kind of both are thinking about the same thing. Like, Hey, have you, remember what we talked about last time kind of deal? And, uh, he was like, yeah, yeah. And, and then we just started talking and, you know, kind of gave us this unique opportunity with everybody working from home and, and kind of uh, all the craziness going on schedules had more holes in them than they normally would. So we got together that following winter, which would be last winter. And we put this all together. What it is, is like I said, it's a, it's a master class. If you're familiar with that concept. Uh, a master class is like a, an in-depth thing where you consult pros. They have it for, you know, everything from golfing to art to, you know, you name it. There's there's a master class out there for that. I guess that probably best encapsulates um, what we're trying to do with this product. And there's over 200 lessons currently. Something that, of course, I, I want to add to this in the future. It's not something that's going to be a one-and-done deal. There's over 200 lessons in there broken down in, you know, two to 20 minute segments, um, going through everything from fish behavior. There's a segment on tigers There's stuff on live bait. There's, there's a lot of, there's, there's everything. It's, it's a lot. It's basically, if I were to write my, you know, lack of a better word, a tell all book and break it all down in a usable consumable format that people could have at their fingertips on the go, even as on the go as in the boat, this is it. Quick question is come with a hotline where I can be on the water and just say, Hey Jeff, what would, what would you do with today? <laughs> you know, so what we did when we paired with this, just like any kind of a course where you'd take, you do have access to, to me personally through a private month, uh, the Muskie Academy private group uh, on Facebook, which is just what we've done is kind of our circle the wagons area there. Um, not everybody that's purchased and, and joined has joined on Facebook, but um, you know they're welcome to message me also. But there's also some members in the group. That's the best place for folks to ask questions. Uh, early on here, I'm keeping it pretty open. If people have questions, and there's some, you know, plenty of questions asked and on the message board in there as well as in private messages if it's something that uh, folks want to ask just directly rather than have it out there for everybody to see. That's fine too. Uh, and I've just kept it, you know, we'll get back to it in 24 hours. And most of the response time I believe has been, you know, really quick. It's to the best of my knowledge, but so you got that, that opportunity to get clarification on anything you get in the course there, as well as any other questions you might have from that you see covered in there. If you know, Hey, I'm rigging my boat. What should I put on for electronics? This is what I'm running. Just anything else you related. It's just, a, it's a good way to kind of create that community 
uh, for support, plus having a lot of, you know, a wealth of in-depth information at your fingertips to, to consume, like I said, on the go. I mean, the way we have it set up, you can listen to it 24-7. You can jump around in there to anything you want. If you want to listen to fall stuff, you can listen to fall stuff. If you want to listen to stuff about Summer Peak, and then it breaks down, you know, by lake type, bait choice, you know, where you should be looking, what you should be doing, what kind of weather patterns coincide best for that time of year. You've got a lot of that stuff mixed in there, and then all the way down to, you know, for, for new anglers, you know, stuff like, hey, you know, what are, like, five good baits you really need in your box? Or what, what do you need that, um, you know, to get started? And, you know, what kind of rods are best for what? There's some of that basic stuff, too. But I would say, as a whole, it's a lot of higher-level, in-depth, musky talk. It's not, hey, sharpen your hooks, hey, do a figure eight at the end of your cast. There's a little bit of that because certainly there'll be, um, you know, novice anglers that have maybe not caught a musky yet or caught one or two, and they're, they're looking for some of that basic stuff. But I feel like that stuff's pretty prevalent. You know, that stuff's out there, right? You can look up anything on you know YouTube or, or read any article and, and kind of get your fill on that. So we cover it some, but um, the goal in this is, is really to go way more in depth. And in fact, a lot of the, all the feedback we've gotten so far has been overwhelmingly positive. And some of them are guys I've had in my boat. Some of them are, there's one, two PMTT anglers that signed up for it. There's one fishing guide that signed up for it. There's a relatively well-known co-author of a musky fishing book that signed up for it. I've actually been kind of surprised by the caliber of folks. And I take that as a, very huge compliment and I'm very humbled by that to the, the people that signed up. It's not necessarily people who just have never caught a muskie before and, and the response I've gotten from those folks has also been really uh man, you know, give me give me that good pat on the back feel. I really, really happy with that. So hopefully we continue to help uh you know, teach people to muskie fish and maybe open their eyes and get them thinking a little bit different way about pursuing those fish. So Jeff, if somebody wants to check out this uh Muskie Academy, how do they go about doing that? Um, the best way you can go right to muskyacademy.com. It's musky with a Y academy.com. Um, or you can check us out on social media. Um, and then the platforms there, there's the Instagram page as well as the Facebook page. And you're welcome to message me directly. If you have any questions to, is there how to sign up or anything else? It's a subscription based service. So, uh, it's, it's two ninety nine for the year, a 365 day subscription. And again, you have 24 seven access. You can download the app that we built this all with, uh, and you can actually listen to it offline. You can take it with you anywhere you want. And it's good for 365 days. And yeah, so that's the basic platform. But check it out, you know, muskyacademy.com. Um, and again, on social media, and on Facebook, and Instagram. Awesome. That sounds really good. Oh, thanks, man. Like I said, pretty pumped about it. And I'm sure you can relate to. I know you got your up and coming uh, 10,000 cast stuff there. I'm looking forward to checking those stuff out when those drop too. And a lot of good stuff coming up in the musky world. I think, uh, you know, touching on this stuff, I just, you know, the one the one thing about this, we've, we've all gone through, you know, a lot of these great revolutions in, in the, in the musky world, especially over the last, you know, 10 to 12 years, but over the last 20, I mean, kind of seen it all right. Where baits were the big difference maker and then the rods that kind of followed it. And then, you know, you've had any number of electronics and everything else kind of changed the game. And it's kind of like, what's the next best thing. And I firmly believe, you know, the information is really that next best tool. You can have all the best gear in the world. And I routinely have people that show up in my boat. And I'm sure you do too, that, you know, they show up to throw a bulldog and they've got a winch on there or, well, or a low speed, I guess, winch would be a little outdated, but that's not really the best for ripping baits, right? You know, it's not, it, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff out there where it, it doesn't matter how much money you spend on the gear. If you don't know how to use it and how to apply it, I think that's just a really big downside for, for, for folks, right? I mean, it's a really big, it's a really big negative, right? It's a really big deficit that it's really hard to fill. You know, the not so easy part, the easy part is finding some information online. The not so easy part is finding it in a broken down way that's consumable and usable you know, in a quick format where you can, where you can actually retain the knowledge and, and apply it in real time. Um, so that, again, like I said, it's, it's a work, it's not really a work in progress. It's a completed work, but it will be something we add to. And, and I really, uh, I'm excited for what's there. There's already 17 plus hours of video footage in there. Um, I spent this last summer grabbing some more stuff too, as the whole summer went through. So we can already start working on kind of that phase two. And yeah, so there's a lot, a lot of room to build as well. And the traction we've gotten has been encouraging. So looking forward to see where it goes. Well, I think as musky anglers, we're all so hungry to gain knowledge and, and you're providing a tool that will allow everybody to gain some of that knowledge. So it sounds really, really cool, Jeff. Yeah, I appreciate that, Brad. Thanks. We put a lot of time into it. And like I said, the end goal is, you know, teaching people how to catch muskies more than, you know, it, it's not that there's a lot of great stuff out there, man, but you know, not, maybe not everybody has time to go and tend, uh, you know, in-person seminars or an in-person musky school or any of that. It's not really made to necessarily replace anything that's currently out there. There's really nothing like this out there. It's not just like film seminars or, you know, recycled stuff like that. It, it is like built 
you, know, you could use, essentially you could even use it as like a dichotomous key if you're on the water and you got your butt kicked that day and say, well, you know, where maybe I'm maybe I'm looking in the wrong place. Let's go through some of this stuff and look and see a couple segments. Hey, what do I do? It's a windy day versus a calm day. It's cloudy versus overcast. It's this time of year versus that time of year. You know, it was a late spring, it was an early spring, and you can you can pull together a handful of those sections, you know, in those small consumable videos and watch it and give yourself at least that confidence and, uh, and a good starting point at the very least. Um, and, and the anglers that are a bit more adept in the sport and have had more experience will we'll pull that together more quickly than the folks that haven't. But like I said, there's a lot of information there. I think it's worth checking out for sure. And uh, yeah, we'll see where she goes. So Jeff, speaking of, uh, I mean, so talking about information, that's kind of what we do the podcast here. I know, you, I know you have a, you know other forms now where you, people can get more information from you, but let's talk a little bit about uh, before we move into 2022 season, why don't we talk about last season a little bit? How was last season for yeah, you? Absolutely. Comparably numbers wise, how was it, you know, versus we'll say 2020 or 2019? Yeah, it was really good. Um, we had, uh, I spent a little bit more time on Green Bay this year um, than I have in past years, a couple extra days down there. You know, I'm usually down there about mm, 15 to 18 days a season or so. And I was down there, I think, I think 18 or 19 days this year. So I spent a little bit more time down there. Um, we still averaged over fish a day out on the bay, all casting. And then up north, it was good as well. Um, we averaged, I don't know what our average was, but I ended up with 138 fish in the boat for the year. The biggest was a 54, uh, caught casting on Green Bay. That was caught on a, I was on an X-toad out on the bay. And then um, the biggest up here was one. We had a good number of like 48, 49s and a bunch of really nice fish in that 44 to 47-inch range. So the biggest couple, one came on a, did I catch that one on? That's a good question. I'm <laughs> trying to think, John. Like, I did get one on the Medusa up here that was my longest fish for the year, and it was like 49.999, you know, multiple tail pinch, just a hair under 50. Super nice, well-built fish, and that was in September. I was fishing solo with, uh, with a customer there, rather. He was up front, and I was in the back, and he had moved a bunch of fish on blades, and uh, I was throwing rubber, and I, I caught that one. Uh, hit the water, a couple upward snaps over some weeds right before a big thunderstorm, you know, coming into a moon period about a about as classic as you could get uh, for a big window. Um, but it was not a fish that I was aware was there. It wasn't a spot where I was. It was a good spot, but I did, had not seen that fish previously. But it was really cool to, when that one came up to the net, it was like, ooh, that's, that's a good one. He did an awesome job in the net. And so that was our one of our highlights. And then a couple other real nice fish, a couple of first muskies in that upper 40-inch range as well, and a couple more mid-40s mid that were for some first and personal best for folks. Overall, very good season. June was probably our best month. June and September are the ones that really stand out. There was a good good flurry in August there as well, as far as up north goes. And then again, you know, the, the time on the bay is typically more that August and you know towards September time frame when everybody's down uh, for kind of that summer peak time frame. And, and that was good out there as well. Um, so really, yeah, like I said, no complaints overall. Yeah, a couple milestones reached there. We cracked. Uh, we, we moved past the 200 mark for first muskies uh, caught in my boat, which is you know it's kind of a as much as catching anything, everybody remembers their first muskie and to help people achieve that is one of the things I love the most about my job. And I think I'm sitting at somewhere around like 207 or 210 first muskies that have been taken in my boat. But we crossed the 200 mark this year, which is pretty awesome. So yeah, well, we're all no complaints, man. Really good season. Excited for 2022. So Jeff, let's talk about 2022 a little bit. Typically about this sure. time, about this time of year, I'll get customers that I'll start to ask me, you know, like, Hey, I'm going to start fishing in the spring. You know, what, what should I be throwing? What size bait should I be throwing? And I know typically you hear a lot of small stuff in the spring and I know Brad is completely against that. He goes big right away out the, out the box for you personally. What's your mix of baits to start the season out? You know, it really depends. I know we've talked about this a little in the past at some point. I'm not sure if we talked about here or just in, elsewhere at some point, but you know, one of the best days I ever had was on Magnum rubber. Uh, most of the fish that time came on, uh, a Magnum, the, well, the original, the China Medusa, the original Medusa, the original, the big one, the 12 ounce one, not the, not the monster, but when there was only two sizes back when Jason Summers owned it years ago, that was 2012 when we had the early ice off and two of my fish came on smaller baits on, on bulldogs that day. And the rest all, um, came on, uh, on big rubber stuff. He'd be throwing, you know, any time of year and considering it a big bait for sure. And uh, I landed six fish that day and I hooked nine. And I broke my personal best twice that day. The two, the three biggest were 46 and three quarters, uh, 48 and a half and a 49 and change as well. Like I said, I tied my personal best. I had a number of 48 coming in at the time in Northern, in Northern Wisconsin anyway. And uh, 48 and a half was the tie for my personal best. I broke it later with a 49 and that was all on Magnum rubber. And that was opening day. So it was Saturday of Memorial Day weekend in Northern Wisconsin. Uh, so as well as you can have a year where a mess number five or a uh, 
little four inch phantom or something real tiny is, is your go-to bait on opening day. Sometimes when those big mamas are ready to go and they're through the spawn and they're, I mean, basically the pattern we were fishing then was more akin to something like a mid June uh, versus an opening day type pattern just because of the accelerated uh, weed growth and, and accelerated warming trend that took place that year with the early, early ice off. Um, I think this year, at least the way we're tracking in Northern Wisconsin, I would definitely say we're looking for a relatively either normal to, you know, we can call it normal, but average to above average or earlier than average uh, ice off. A lot of the lakes up here have maybe 16 to maybe 20 inches of ice, I would say, of good clear ice, and then there's some snowpack on top depending where you are and how well-traveled. But um, the areas that we fish, we just fished a spot yesterday, or two days ago, excuse me, that I know has not had any holes punched anywhere near it for the year on one of the larger, not super large lake, but large enough, out on some mid-lake structure, and there was really only about 16 inches of ice out there. So, you know, compared to years past where we've had, you know, two, two and a half plus feet of ice, plus, you know, good couple feet of snow on top, um, it's not going to take very long to go if we get a, a, a warm spring. Yeah, I could relate to that as well here, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> the reports, I, I don't get as much time to go out on the ice, but uh, this year isn't the year to really even hit the ice around my area. We, you know, where the roads have been plowed, where guys were going in and out off the lakes, there's 20-some inches of ice. But uh, you get off that road, and you might find six inches here or there. So it's really strange. We've just had so much snowfall in early. You know, our first ice started making, and we just got pummeled with tons and tons of snow this year. So definitely going to play a factor. And if you're cruising across a lake right now, even on a snowmobile, you're going to hit uh certain areas where you're going to see a ton of slush and a lot of water on top of the ice. So that ice is uh, being bowed by the weight of the snow. And uh, I would say I agree completely. It's going to, it's going to go away quick this year the way it's looking. Yeah. We had a, a similar deal early on here and then we had a warm up kind of melted everything off and then it resolidified, but it just hasn't gotten so cold. So we were fortunate. We almost ended up in a very similar situation to what you just described. And I guess thankfully for, for the ice fishing side of things, we did not, but even still, we do not have that much ice compared to what we'd normally have for the month of February. And, uh, you know, a couple more weeks, boys, it's going by, man. It's already February. That's awesome. It's going to be March before you know it, and before that, it'll be open water. I mean, it's, it's, it's coming quick this year. Well, I was just thinking about that the other day, Jeff. I mean, you know, it was yesterday, actually. I was thinking, all right, we're into February now. It won't be long, be, like you said, before... You know, Green Bay, those Fox River guys, they're chomping at the bit right away. I mean, sometimes they get out there uh, occasionally by the time that the uh, Wausau show shows up, and that used to be the early show. So now I would imagine by the time Wausau shows up, mid-March or, you know, whatever, it is slightly later than mid-March, it should be, I mean, guys will be having boats out. Yeah, for sure. It's looking that way. So we'll see. I mean, I really, I, I actually, I love the early years. It gives us more time during those more predictable times. For the muskies, you know, I guess you could I'd equate it to like that, you know, that pre-summer peak, summer peak time frame where things really stabilize. Weed growth gets up, fish settle into patterns. They become pretty predictable. It's one of the better times of the year, you know, to catch large fish because they do become that predictable. They're hanging in predictable spots. Uh, a lot of, you know, more often than other times of year, the changes just don't affect them as much. They're just kind of locked in their ways in many cases, and it just makes them uh, a lot easier to pattern and catch. And, and the more days we can get of that versus an erratic up and down, hot and cold, on the spawn, off the spawn, start to spring, uh, the better off we are. And typically in those years, too, the fish quality, their bodies are more robust. They're, they're, they're going to get through the spawn and, and kind of recover quickly like that. It's, it's a lot less uh, stress on the fish, and they, they carry a lot nicer form throughout the good majority of the year, at least in my experience around this area. Um, so I'm all for it, man. I'm looking for it. I can't wait to get out of the water. It's a little showdown in Chicago there, kind of spurred the spurred the musky juices a little bit and by the time we're done with this next show here i know it's going to be the itch is going to be getting pretty bad it already is so i'm uh, pretty excited anybody are you guys traveling at all for uh muskies this year anybody going are you going down south again brad well actually right after uh the chicago show i was planning on heading down to west virginia with chase gibson but uh unfortunately they just got pummeled with rain like the week before chicago and uh pretty much stained the water really bad so i blew that off for his uh, suggestion, but yes, I will be heading south sometime, um, whether it be Ohio or West Virginia or wherever we're going to go, but um, kind of playing it by ear at this point, but I'm going to be heading down there in May. Sounds like a heck of a trip down there, man. It's something I got to add to my list and check out. I mean, uh, that travel for musky fishing is really neat too. It really helps open your eyes to some different stuff. I mean, stuff you can bring back with you, especially when you fish with a guy like that, that, you know, knows his water down there and 
and uh, to kind of see how they do it elsewhere, it, it can, you know, kind of trigger some thoughts about back home, you know. I've uh, Every time I've shared a boat with somebody, whether it be St. Clair or Canada or Minnesota or any of the places I've gone, uh, or North Dakota for that matter, we did that show, did a show with Larry Smith this last year, we went up to North Dakota and fished out there, we caught some tigers, they got some leeches out there, they got some fish from, I think he said Pennsylvania or Indiana, basically wherever they could get them from. You got a mix of strains out there, you water that doesn't really get touched much. But really neat to see how somebody else approaches it. A lot of the things are the same, but some of the things were different. It was, uh, especially to see them in a system that's not really maybe your classic musky system, you know, more of a, you know, bigger flow of G. It's just different water. You know, North Dakota lakes aren't, aren't like northern Wisconsin lakes. You know, they're just different. And it was really, or like Minnesota lakes for that matter. It was really, uh, really neat. Anytime you travel like that, I highly recommend to do that, anything like that uh, to broaden your horizons for sure. So, Jeff, you know, a few weeks back, we had a conversation with Matt Seifert, and we were talking about open water, and I think I asked maybe another guest after that. I don't remember, Brad. I can't. It all starts to run together. But anyways, oh, I think I asked Steve Jonas that same question. So it seemed as though I would say, what, five, six, ten years, who knows, it all goes by so fast. Like, the articles are always about open water, the next frontier, or the last frontier, or the whatever. And you know, it seems as though you see more and more guys poking around out there in your neck of the woods. Is that something that's like becoming more pressured or is it still vastly untouched the open water fish? That's a great question, man. Um, you know, and that definitely, I think varies, you know, based on where you go, you know, Wisconsin versus Minnesota versus obviously someone that's known for open water fishing, like a St. Clair or something. I mean, everybody's got a little bit different definition of it, you know, and, and where I'm at here in Northern Wisconsin, our lakes are so different. And we've got big ones, we've got small ones, you've got foliages, foliage, you know, type riverine type systems, you've got, uh, you know, your natural lakes, fiscal lakes, shallow, weedy lakes. There's a lot of different variety here. So open water, true open water probably doesn't exist in every system the way um, here that it might in, you know, real large expanses of water because a lot of our lakes just aren't quite that big. Everything's always kind of a cast length or two away from something in, in a lot of our systems, you know, whether it be a rock bar or a mid-lake hole or something like that. But there are a lot more guys poking around out there. The one big major change up in our area has been the, the legalizing of trolling. Um, that's definitely in, impacted some of the open water pressure, um, without a doubt, especially on some of our more notable large lakes that always had a history of producing big fish uh, from either roll trollers or from you know getting back into the uh, you know the 80s and that back to the uh, you know the days when trolling was legal and then then it was made illegal and then back trolling was legal and then. You know, then they just outlawed it all together. So a lot of people kind of gave up on it with the exception of folks that roll trolls. Um, there's a few people that casted, you know, and, and did, did well at it for sure. But, um, and in many cases, a lot of the stuff that people called open water back in the day were really over stuff like sandgrass flats, where it wasn't really open water. It was deep, but it was just deep weeds that were, you know, two or three feet tall or maybe even less. And, uh, and folks were fishing over that as well. So it really depends on, you know, what you consider open water in our area. But I would definitely say 100% there has been more pressure uh, and a lot of it's controlling, you know, you, you see some guys out, you know, with better electronics and, and better gear and, and more, more knowledge on the subject, you know, stuff spreads pretty rapidly these days. Um, you know, and, and so folks are out there searching around a bit more with stuff like forward imaging or, or even just good side imaging, really. I mean, just doing it out there, it gives you a lot more of a, a remote sensing feel, right? You can see that bait out there. You can see fish. It's, it's pretty eye opening to see how those fish scatter in front of a boat, whether it be a trolled boat or even a boat that's under propulsion from a trolling motor while you're casting. Um, so to see those fish, and, and even when you're working a break line by us, you'll see fish off the opposite side of the boat. Um, or even when you're not seeing off the opposite side of the boat, you don't see them on the other side of the boat, or you're not having action in the weeds. Um, and you wouldn't really know that, as, you know, not to the level of certainty that you have now with the electronics that we have. So uh, it's definitely drawn a lot more attention to the open water. And I don't think anything's changed as far as, you know, there's more fish there, less fish there than there was. Maybe on certain systems, I think the trolling thing up here um, was pretty hot and heavy for a while as far as success rates go, and I think it's, it's leveled off a bit now, um, especially just because some of those systems were, it was, it was pretty concentrated to a couple of major systems, well, not a couple, probably an under, under-representation, but to a lot of the major basins, Cisco lakes, I think a lot of those fish have seen some pressure now. They're not quite as, you know, they're not, it's not the first time they've seen a troll bait anymore. Um, it's not getting hammered, there's not tons of people doing it, but definitely the pressure has in line with the uh, open water. Cause it seems like a lot of those guys are using the, uh, the pan optics and that kind of stuff. Are you using pan optics much? Uh, I do. I have a pan optics scene in my boat. Um, and it's, it's helpful for sure. I mean, it, it does, um, it does add some, again, it's another, it's another sense, right? It's like adding another sense to your, 
to your to your being there you can you can see stuff a little further i don't really do the drive around and stuff like like in a lot of guys in minnesota i mean i guess the first guy i really ever heard of doing that and, and certainly the one that in my mind made it popular over there was probably bob benson was the first person that i heard of through whispers i don't know him super well personally but that was a name i heard over and over again you know several years ago about you know driving around and finding fish like that i know there's a number of guys including matt who've done extremely well with it over there but over here, I don't do a ton of it that way, but I do have one on my boat and I do use it. Um, it's really super nice, especially for sucker fishing by us as well. Uh, it really, it really provides a nice, uh, extra sense there. So you don't have to, you don't have to wonder what's back there. You can see in real time what's going on there. So it's a really nice tool for that as well. Um, definitely has a place in the arsenal, but I do think it takes a lot of time. It's definitely something that as a guide is a bit more helpful than maybe just as a solo angler, just because sometimes the, the level of, I don't know the amount of the, the amount of your attention it takes to run it and run it effectively. I guess is maybe a good way to put it. Not saying you can't do it by yourself; you certainly can. But the average guy might struggle with that. Whereas if you got nothing to do but sit on your butt and watch a graph, you're going to be a lot more effective at it because you're not missing much. You know, one of the issues is with live. If you're not watching the whole time, you're you're potentially <laughs> going to miss something. And so, oh, you know, yeah. it's hard to catch fish if you're not actually fishing. And so. I, you know, I got mixed emotions on it. You know what I mean? I, I think a lot of people think it's the, the catch all man. If the, if your bait isn't in the water, you're going to struggle. So I think it's a useful tool, but I don't know that it's the, the end all game. Well, and I can tell you, and I'm sure you're, if you, if you're, you're using it quite a bit, I think you'll, you found probably the same thing that I found that I don't know if there's anything as frustrating or more frustrating, or maybe it's just a good confirmation of what you think you already know is when you know there's a monkey somewhere, whether it be on side imaging, forward imaging, there's a fish right over there, 40 feet, whatever. And you cast at it and you watch the bait and the fish just doesn't even, nope. <laughs> they do, you know, it's just, they don't even, they're like, nope, not, not doing it. Not, not even, not even interested a little, or maybe they turn some away or what have you. But just because you know where they are, it doesn't make them eat. Uh, I mean, that's, that's one thing that you can pretty much take to the bank on that. I mean, in fishing places like Green Bay, too, where, you know, a lot of those fish show up on side image on those flats and stuff. And, and even the guys that troll and stuff, I'm sure you see anybody that trolls somewhere that's relatively featureless like that can relate. I mean, it, you can see fish laying all over the place. It doesn't matter. Like, if they don't want to eat, they don't want to eat. You do your best. You try to make them eat, right? Of course, that's part of the game. But it really does confirm that, you know, when the, when the 800 pound gorilla doesn't want to move, the 800 pound gorilla just doesn't move. It's just, they just sit there or they lazily swim off uninterested. But when they, when it opens up, obviously, you know, the better, better uh, ability you have to get a bait in front of hungry fish's face. Well, then I guess there's the flip side of that coin. But as you said, on a live screen, if you're not watching when it comes and you look back, there's no, there's no record, right? It doesn't scroll and, and, and record. Whereas like, if you look at your graph every couple seconds, you can kind of see that, uh, you know, oh, hey, there was a school of fish back there on your side image, for example, whereas live, you don't have that option. Yeah, it's, I don't know. There's a couple <laughs> different things. You know, I call it uh, the predator awareness zone, right? So if you, right. uh, if that fish knows you're there and you start slinging baits at it, guess what? You know, will you catch one? Of course you will. But there's going to be a lot of times that you don't. And, um, you know, the bottom line really, in my mind, is these fish protect themselves. They're aware of their surroundings. And they are capable of protecting themselves as well. So I don't know. It, it, you know, I think where Jeff was kind of going with this was the Matt Seifert program and talking about some of that. But honestly, I mean, if we start harassing fish where they normally have rested, um, they're going to adapt kind of like a white-tailed deer, if you think about it. You know, as we build in different communities and woods and whatever else. And pretty soon those deer have just adapted to their surroundings. And I think the muskies do the same thing. I, I would agree with that hundred percent. I, I good example of that is again, kind of going back to that green Bay. You know, there's one or two guys that kind of drive around in between everybody, you know, looking for them on their imaging. And it's like, dude, you're, you're relatively shallow water driving over the top of every, you know, you're harassing every single fish on the structure. And it doesn't do anybody any favors, right? That doesn't make them, you know, it's kind of like if you're a big duck hunter, right? You don't go build a roost pond and expect them to show up at the cornfield. It doesn't work that way. You know what I mean? They're, they're, they're addled. They're, they're agitated. They're aware. They're not, they don't like that. It's not to say that it still can't work, but when you're actively seeking out fish, like you said, and hassling them, especially where they normally are safe and normally aren't getting messed with, it, it, it's going to have an impact. There's no question. They're, they're a top end predator. They're a low density, uh, excuse me, a low density critter. And, you know, quite frankly, they're long lives and, 
I don't know if you want to call it smart, but they remember. And when they have bad experiences and get hassled, they often will relocate. It's kind of weird because we've been we've been running this podcast now for almost three years. So I think we're at 100, over 150 episodes. And, you know, in the early stages of this podcast, we talked side imaging, side imaging, side imaging. And now the last, I don't know, let's say the last year, maybe, we definitely talk about, you know, pan optics and live scope and all that kind of stuff. If if you had to pick one since you play with both, is side imaging still the absolute must-have technology? Well, that's a really good question, but I, you know what? I use my stuff, any of my stuff I use in tandem and my side imaging. Um, I would say my side imaging is probably still my absolute must-have, my good side imaging. The reason being because it's not all about locating fish, right? With side imaging, I'm oftentimes, I can mark out. I can see where the weed line runs. I can see, um, you know, I can see bait balls off to the side. And I can see off both sides at once. Um, I guess if somebody were to take, you know, three live imaging units and have one facing forward, one facing left, one facing right or something like that, and, and really always be remote sensing the entire area while they, and have three screens right there all day. I mean, if you're going to really take it to the extreme extreme, I guess maybe you'd, you'd be talking about something, you know, next level. But realistically, that side image is, is crucial. I, uh, I use that a lot, especially in my capacity as a guide, you know, because I'm running a boat and if I got a heavy wind, I've got other stuff. I mean, you know, you can you waypoint a lot of stuff out, but it's a lot easier to be running along and just see, you know, what you're looking at with that side image and, and be able to adapt in real time as your boat passes it and make those adjustments, especially for stuff that you've run a number of times. Cause you know what you should be seeing and you know what you shouldn't be seeing. That being said, I also think that for me, um, and anybody else who's a multi-species angler, you know, that stuff really tracks really well, even to something like ice fishing for me. You know, a lot of the stuff that I record, I run my front of my boat. I run with my, ice fishing waypoints on my front graph. So anytime I find stuff that I want to dial in for, for later use, uh, for whether it be open water walleye or for ice fishing, I can, you know, go with my side image and I can track that and, and put that stuff all into that graph. And it's just so huge for identifying the niches and the little nooks and crannies and the little, you know, the little, the little hot spots on a piece of structure that knowing that because the fish isn't always going to be present. And quite frankly, I'd rather be able to identify those key pieces of structure and not have to see the fish to know that it's good. I'd like to be able to see what the weeds look like there. Oh, hey, it, it jumped out another 20 yards here versus the rest of the weed line. I'll GPS it, you know, drag my cursor over on my side image, GPS that little tip. And a lot of times it's on a spot where I caught fish in the past, like, ah, oh, that's what they were on. But it's not something that's going to be, you know, readily apparent, you know, at, at first glance a lot of times. And, and a lot of my best, best, best spots, these are my most consistent spots, aside from stuff that, you know, your, your spots that, of course, are going to be your community good spots. But a lot of my best little ace in the hole spots are spots that I've discovered in that exact fashion. You know, you see this little niche or maybe you move some fish there and you kind of really stare at the graph when you're going through there slow and meticulously and figuring out exactly, or if, if there's anything apparent anyway, and figuring out what those fish were actually keying in on and why there was always a fish on this part of the break line when it seemed pretty insignificant or pretty bland the whole way. Um, and finding those little things and then, you know, then GPSing them in is, is huge. And that side imaging, in my opinion, is the best way to do that for sure. There's one tool that we maybe didn't touch on, and that's the 360. Our first episode that's going to be, you know, going out February 5th here, Ice Out Muskies, we definitely benefited from the 360. And I think, you know, it ties back to when I was talking about the predator awareness zone. The neat thing about 360 is you're able to see in a side imaging form what's in front of you. So you may be approaching a fish. And before you get there, you can make some corrections with your boat to actually fire a cast at one. It's a it's a tool, I would say, that's probably secondary to side imaging, but there's a time and a place for every tool. And uh, the 360 definitely benefited me in my boat multiple times this past season. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, too. You know, to the earlier point of all those fish, you know, avoiding the boat and moving, you'd never even know they were there. You know, you go over it with a graph or you never even see the fish. They've, they've moved out of the way before you've even gotten to them. I could definitely see that. I do not currently run a 360 imaging in my boat. I have been in the boat with people who have it. I do definitely see the relevance on it. I definitely think it's an awesome tool. It's just not something I have in my boat currently. But, uh, yeah, that's an excellent point. So I guess this question could go to either one of you two. Is there eventually ever a point where technology gets so good that it's almost just like shooting fish in a barrel? Or do you think, much like Brad said, do you think these fish are going to continually adapt as we start chasing them in their, you know, in their, what used to be a safe zone maybe isn't a safe zone anymore and they're, they're going to adapt to different areas again? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that the technology, again, it's not the catch-all, right? It's, it's, uh, they're small tools 
and it goes back to your your experience, your time on the water is really the true identification to catching fish. It truly is. All of these different tools, whether it be your map card, auto charting, side imaging, down imaging, 360, uh, panoptics, live scope, whatever you want to say. I mean, they're all tools that will help you on the water. But at the end of the day, I don't know that it's like to a point where if I have this piece of electronics, I'm going to catch all the fish because you still have to look at the fish behavior and you still have to be at the right place at the right time. To me, the bottom line is time on the water, hard work, and, uh, and putting, in, putting in the, uh, the hours to actually make it happen. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. I think that's kind of you know, at the risk of sounding like an infomercial, kind of the, the point I was making earlier, like with the Muskie Academy thing where you're kind of coming back to tying in all that great equipment, right? Like I don't think there's until they make a machine or make some sort of a, um, a tool that makes muskies bite. I mean, you got to know, you have to understand what the fish are doing too, right? It's not just about, Hey, you know, the, the, it, it's information, right? Like you can have the best baits, you can have the best this, but Hey, if it's a rubber bite and they want blades, you know, or if it's a rubber bite and you're throwing blades, well, you might be out of luck or if they want jerk baits or glide baits or there's a lot of differences that way. Like in why those fish key in on such, such certain things is you can only dial it into such a level to where you kind of figure out what conditions warrant, what use of baits and, and what time of year, what's going on in the systems. I, I firmly believe that with muskies, one of the biggest things to understand is, is the same way that I've approached everything else I do, being a duck hunting guide, a steelhead fishing guide, a walleye fishing guide, you know, ice and open water for that. It doesn't matter if it's pike, perch, crappies, bluegill, gobies. It doesn't matter. Everything has a way about it, and everything has a life cycle. Everything has important parts of that life cycle. And throughout that life cycle, you know, a good example would be like the spawn, right? Okay, so the spawn is one that's big, and it's very impactful. It's one we all know about. And there's other key times throughout that fish's throughout that fish's annual cycle, as well as you know, maybe you could make the argument, oh, you know, over the course of many years, you know, as a fish gets bigger, it may behave differently and such. But over the course of a year, an adult fish experiences, you know, as you go through those seasonal changes, you know, you get that, you know, that first cool down in the fall where a lot of times the fish transition shallow and they're starting to eat bucktails and they, and they put them in the feed bag, right? You got that. That's definitely like in my mind a life cycle change is a behavioral change. It happens on, a, on an environmental key. It's something that triggers that fish's behavior and learning to identify that kind of stuff is the super secret sauce. And even more so, like in my neck of the woods where I'm hitting a lot of lakes, I'm not just fishing, you know, one or two massive bodies of water. And even on a massive body of water, it might be the, a good example for, you know, in, at least in my experience, if I, you know, in Minnesota, I'd be like, you know, hey, when the west end of Vermilion is good versus the east end. And I'm sure there's fish biting on both ends. But you, I think you can relate to that if you've been on a big body of water like that or, you know, Green Day, hey, they're biting on this area, but not down here. I mean, there's a lot of that stuff can change, but up here we have those self-contained systems, and, and whether it be, you know, an adjacent river system for steelhead, hey, this, this, this river got a little extra flow, the more fish showed up there. Finding these migrations that coincide with these life cycle events, whether it be a spawn, a feeding period, uh, a seasonal feeding period, you know, which can be triggered by, you know, photo period plus cool down plus, you know, what's going on in the system for other species of fish as well whether that be a, a fall spawning fish, like a fisco that moves up shallow and fish, you know, predator fish like a monkey, uh, you know, they, they, they move and they relocate to take advantage of that or the sucker spawn in the spring, a mayfly hatch in June. All of these things are intertwined. Those are all life cycle changes. And those are all, you know, they're all like waypoints and stops along the way that a monkey goes from start to finish 365 days a year. And, and if you can start to identify when those periods happen, that's the secret sauce, in my opinion. And again, and then by us, where I getting back to what I was trying to say there, and I got sidetracked with the lake. It's happening on Lake A at a different time than it's happening on Lake B. Okay, you know, the, the, again, the good correlation there is, you know, we talked about early season. Early season fish, people go, oh, go to your shallow stained lakes, go to the shallow bays, those warm up first. That's where the muskies spawn first, and that's a really good representative example of all those things that again happen throughout the course of the year. It's not just what it's a it's an oversimplified way of something that's super complicated that's going on uh, in the system. Again, where as you approach the summer peak, right, you got pre-summer peak conditions, you know, weeds are at three quarters growth. All the fish are done spawning. The muskies, the big females, they're all well past the spawn, well recovered. They're starting to feed heavily. Water temperature, temperatures are elevating. Lakes are starting to stratify, you know, that pre-summer time frame, that's another waypoint along the way, right? Another stop. And if you can identify when that's happening in a 200 acre lake, and take advantage of it and crush a bunch of big fish, especially the biggest fish in the system when they're the most vulnerable, vulnerable meaning the most aggressive, the most targetable, and they haven't been caught yet as early, and then go on to the lake that's 4,000 acres down the road 
and hit it the same thing as the warming trend progresses, for example, as the weather conditions warm, and then that same thing starts to happen in the larger system down the road, you know, that's, that's again, putting together the pieces of the puzzle. And there's no way you can ever know exactly when all that's happening. But when you're on the water seven days a week for eight to 14 hours a day for, you know, 10, 12, 15 years in a row, you, you start to put that stuff together. And that's kind of my philosophy on, on putting all this stuff together. Again, you know, tying it back to the Muskie Academy, the seasonal breakdown stuff. That's kind of some of those more intangible things where it, it's really hard to talk about that in a written format or, or in, a, in a short, brief, um, thing like a podcast like this and you can kind of touch on it but it's just so in-depth and so complex and there's so many different examples of when that happens in each type of system that you know it, it's enough to make your head explode but it's one of those things where if you can truly dial in some of that stuff it's going to be the best information and something that you add in the black book is your aha moments to come back and try to take advantage of year after year after year you know as you're as you progress as a musky angler well i got a lot more out of that than i uh than i bargained for jeff <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I re- mostly the reason I ask is cause I'm, I, I occasionally pay attention to things that I see online and, you know, everybody's concerned about, you know, better electronics, more electronics. And so I'm just getting, you know, you guys are out there doing it every day, just trying to get your feel for, you know, what you, what your thoughts are on, you know, the current state of electronics. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's good to have the electronics, but the fish will habituate, I think is the bottom line. Brad covered that beautifully as well as. They will learn as long as they're allowed to live and release successfully and everybody takes care of the resource. As long as the fish persist, the more pressure they get, the more they'll adapt. Um, I would definitely say in the last couple of years, musky fishing has definitely become musky fishing again. Again, you know, getting back to some of those, you know, iconic baits, you know, double cover, bulldog, medusa, lake X, and the stuff that was just really just caught fish with reckless abandon when they came out and then the fish habituated, they learned a little bit and, They'll never buy any bait the same way that they do the first time they see it. You know, it'd be amazing to do a study and see if you could take a little 200, 300 acre lake up here and just like, you know, have no pressure for 10 years and then go fish it and see how long it took those fish to learn again. I'm sure there's been stuff done like that places, but I think it'd be really eye opening for people to, to understand and electronics if, as, as much as anything that I've learned from the electronics and, and being dialed into to my environment, my, my fish, my lakes, my systems and my electronics. It's that I've learned that, you know, people will come up and say, boy, you know, this lake used to be good, but it's not good anymore. And I couldn't disagree more in most cases. There's certainly some exogenous factors there that it might have had a, you know, for one reason or another, the population may have been impacted, you know, adversely in, in some way. But for the most part, it's not that the fish aren't there anymore, is I guess the bottom line. They just got smarter. They just don't fall for the same tricks as easily as they used to. You have to be there at the right time, the right place, you know, look at your high pressure systems to see, you know, those windows, those seating windows become more narrow. And I, I think that's as true in open water, pinpointing fish that hasn't seen a bait all day, if it's been harassed, as it is, you know, fishing your, your favorite weed point that always seems to hold a fish. All right, Jeff. So, you know, we're, we're getting close to wrapping things up. Obviously, we're in the dawn of a new season. I'm obviously, you know, we typically have you on once or twice during the season, usually once during the season. But as we move into 2022, now you've been to the first show, we're approaching the second show. Is there something out there this year that you want to try that's new, either a new bait, a new lake, a new technique, a new anything? Yeah. Um, you know, at the risk of it sounding set up, I'm not trying to fluff your feathers, Brad, but uh, I'm really excited for that grenade. I think that's a really neat, neat presentation to get down a lot, a lot deeper and, uh, and, and apply that blade bite to some of those deeper bites. You know, we just talked a lot about open water. And a lot of those fish, you know, some of the some of the best presentations for that can be, you know, your big lip, jerk baits, rubber, something that sinks and gets down there fast. But a lot of times your bucktails are limited to that upper portion of the water column without a significant amount of, of, of re-rigging. And uh, that's that's probably one of the products I'm most excited for for this year to, to try out this season. I've got a couple of spots in particular I'm really looking forward to trying that out. That weight forward design to get it down like that versus having the weight in the middle of the bait and, and, you, and you're able to to have those blades at the back, which doesn't make the bait rise as quickly. You're able to kind of have it that weight forward that gets it down and you're going to be able to run that bait a lot deeper, a lot more effectively than, at least in my opinion, than, uh, than a traditionally built bucktail. So I'm pretty excited to give that a shot for sure. Yeah, it's, it's quite unique, Jeff, in the, in the fact that, uh, you know, as it's falling, the blades are helicoptering behind. You know, I think there's a few people in Chicago when I was standing there, they were talking to me about it and they were concerned that there isn't a hook behind those blades, but Honestly, I mean, the, the fish that we caught this past season on it, which was quite a few, they all wanted to crush it in the head. You know, you talked about new baits and how fish actually attack a bait when they're brand new. Pretty exciting to see how those fish were actually eating it. 
not that we didn't catch any on the rear hook because we did, but uh, it, it was very successful throughout the whole season. Uh, we caught fish on it right away in the first week of the season, and I we caught fish on it uh, the last day of the season. You'll see that on, on Mayhem's 10,000 cast. The last episode was late November, and we, we got fish on it at that point as well. So the blades are spinning on the way down. Uh, you can work the spade actually in a pull-pause type method, or you can just do a straight retrieve and really nice and slow. And I had Chase Gibson yesterday. He's got some open water down in West Virginia. So I visited with him and I said, you know, one thing I didn't do this past season was check out the fall rate on this bait. So he did some uh, testing with it uh, yesterday for me and found out that in about seven to eight seconds, you're down about 10 feet. So if that helps anybody's um, mental image of what they can do with this bait, it definitely gets to that uh, deeper water column in a fast, efficient way. Awesome, man. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that, especially in that, the deep water a- application, or unless you're trolling or running it on a downrigger or something like that, it's, it's really hard to get that, that blade presentation down to a, any real level of depth. I, for, for your fish, you know, you're targeting them. I know you use your electronics pretty heavily and stuff. What, what's the deepest fish you were able to target effectively that way and, and like run the bait without it rising up too high? What was your depth profile on that, do you know, for casting? When you stop that bait wherever you want it in that water column, and if you're retrieving at a moderate speed or a slow speed, a slow speed, you're going to start seeing it fall a little bit more, but at a moderate speed with, uh, with a, uh, high speed reel, you're going to see that thing just sit exactly in the water column that you want. So if you were to zip one out, make a nice cast, like I said, seven to eight seconds, you're going to be down about 10 feet. If you're just at a moderate pace with your reel, a high speed reel, it's going to stay right at that 10 foot area. Excellent. Yeah, man. So important. That's exactly what I was hoping you'd say. <laughs> it's amazing how well it sits in the water as far as like, you know how a lot of baits, when they're forward heavy like that or rear heavy, they come in at an angle, right? I mean, most blade Correct. baits are weighted at the rear of the bait. So the blades are up high and the tail is kind of down. This particular bait, the grenade literally is just saying, staying perfectly horizontal as you retrieve it. So it's pretty cool in that aspect as well. Yeah, you offer a unique, unique, uh, unique presentation and, uh, and a more natural one, in my opinion. Like you said, when it's not angled that, that one way or the other, that's going to look good. And that's always the hard part about those deep presentations of blades in particular. Absolutely. Well, Jeff, hour flew by that quick. I want to thank you for coming, taking some time out of your schedule to talk musky fishing with us. And we will catch you in the, the Milwaukee show this coming weekend. But if somebody wants to get in touch with you, book a trip with you, what's the best way to go about doing that? Uh, you can reach me. My phone number is 920-639-6286. Uh, the Muskie Academy stuff is all on uh, Instagram, Facebook, or the website, muskieacademy.com. And my website for my guide service, WBH Guide Service, is Wisconsin Muskie with a Y, fishingguide.com. And you can find me on any of the social media platforms as well under Jeff Vandermortel or WBH Guide Service. Thanks again, Jeff. Appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. We hope to see, like I said, we'll catch up with you in Milwaukee. We hope to see many of our listeners out in Milwaukee or we, you know, we still have upcoming shows in, in Wausau in mid-March, mid to late-ish March. And then we're also going to be in Minnesota a couple weeks after the, uh, the Milwaukee Expo. So hopefully we'll see some people out there. And thanks again to all of our listeners for taking some time out of their schedule to dial up our podcast for another week. And we'll catch everybody again next Wednesday.